0: people who are attracted to this organization, perfectionism is a challenge for them. Typically, these are high achieving women that are like, okay, I got to the place that I was trying to get to and now I'm here and I don't feel great. Like what is happening? So a lot of that is internal competition. They're not even looking at the people around them. They are battling with themselves and their own worthiness. So I almost don't have energy to like be in competition with other people because I'm fighting myself so hard. I see that come up more often than I see people taking each other down. Community
1: and relationships often feel like a minefield. And the last two years only magnified the sense of risk and uncertainty when around other people, whether at my son's baseball games or at Sunday school or a work event, it all continues to feel a bit precarious. And my love of community and connection took a hard nosedive over these last couple of years. And I still feel wary in a lot of spaces that normally bring about some level of comfort, which has been such a buzzkill. And this is not the first time my sense of community has been rattled. When my daughter was first diagnosed on the autism spectrum, my husband and I did a hard stop and regrouped around what community meant to us and our family. Our desire for our daughter to be in spaces and community and in relationships where she did not have to perform to be accepted as she is became a non-negotiable. It did not take us long though to realize we desperately needed this kind of community for ourselves too because it is exhausting to perform and hide what's really going on and our true selves. My good friends know when I'm performing and they call me on it. And it's amazing how quickly these performing parts of me can become a default. And I see this in those I work with too. So many I know crave community and connection, but do not trust it enough to not perform. And as a result, Many have lost touch with who they really are, all while deeply longing for spaces to connect honestly and about how they're really doing. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to the Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We have become experts on who we should be and lost touch with who we really are. To avoid judgment, we play a part that hides our humanity for fear our struggles and doubts will lead to misconceptions and missed opportunities. And when we hide our true selves, we build connection and community around a persona instead of who we really are. And it's exhausting. Now, the desire to be seen, loved, and belong drives so many of our decisions, especially when it comes to connecting in community. And since we heal in community, not in isolation, community plays a powerful role in our well-being and culture. But what happens when the communities we are in make us sicker? And I'm thinking of just a few examples, like When you're in a work environment where there are no genuine connections and it feels like everyone's out for themselves, or maybe you're in a community where infighting and gossip are the norm, or there's just a constant fear of failure, for fear of backlash from leadership, all of these can extinguish the healing benefits of community. Now, part of the antidote is finding communities and creating them that support this bumping up against our fear of being misunderstood our fear of not being able to handle a difference of opinion, or even fear of rejection. But this is a messy process, and many spaces struggle with creating this kind of culture. (laughs) And oh, do I know how perfection gets in the way of this because of its value for tidiness and control. And when our places of work and learning and worship require this tidiness, community feels less like community but a place for us to perform and check boxes. Our connections and relationships become transactional instead of a place where we grow and strengthen. And when we're in transactional spaces, we're not truly seen. And the deep change we desire doesn't happen. Community serves as a catalyst and a container for our much needed healing and growth. But if the communities we are in serve as the oppressor, or reinforcer of toxic ways of doing life and work, we feel weighed down and confidence feels elusive. So when I heard about the community my guest today developed, or to be honest, my cynical protector surfaced a bit. I mean, a group of highly successful, driven women gathering together and supporting each other well, no cattiness or scarcity-based competition, This felt too good to be true, but after, especially after the last couple of years, we've experienced collectively. But my guest is the real deal and is cultivating spaces that are much needed medicine to us individually and collectively. Founder, leader, and community builder Shannon Seriano Greenwood knows the benefits of building her network with meaningful relationships over bountiful connections. Her work supports women professionals in creating meaningful connections that will support them both professionally and personally. Pay attention to what Shannon discovered when she looked for the one solution to burnout and work-life balance struggles. Listen for Shannon's connection to her childhood traumas and how she ended up working in and on her business because of these key learnings. And notice what Shannon learned about her penchant for busyness. This is something all of us could take a lesson from. Now, please welcome Shannon Seriano greenwood to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Shannon, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am really looking forward to this conversation. I even confess to you, we just met minutes ago, but I had little butterflies in my stomach because researching you and about your business, really was energizing and exciting. And so I'm like, yay, <laughs> I'm excited to meet someone really cool. But more importantly, I'm really excited to learn from you today. So, and I know my guests, uh, those who listen to the show will feel the same way.
0: Thank you so much. I'm excited.
1: You bet. So I, I guess I want to kick off just on the genesis of your business. And, and in my preparation for our conversation today, you've been really open about how your business, Rebel, was born from postpartum depression and burnout, So I'd love for you to walk me through how Rebel was born and how Rebel supported your healing process and how it changed how you work.
0: Well, I want to explain a tiny bit that I never actually intended for this to be a business. So while yes, it was born from this experience that I had with postpartum and depression and burnout, it wasn't like, this is how I'm going to fix myself by starting a business that solves this problem. It really did happen organically. I was consulting at the time. And an acquaintance of mine said, hey, I want to work on a project with you. What can we do? We brainstormed, we brainstormed. And it turned into an event that then turned into a bigger event that then turned into a conference. But the cool thing about that experience was I had free reign to make the content about whatever I wanted. And so that was what was on my mind. How do I avoid burnout again? Do other people have experiences like this? Are other people doing things differently? That I don't know that I need to know because I am naturally a very curious person. I really wanted to get under the hood of other people's businesses and lives and know what makes them tick and what can I learn from them? So the first event really was just about exploring the different topics of our lives. So we had four themes and they were wellness, money, community, and creativity. And my Mm -hmm. hypothesis was if I can get these four things pretty solid, then I'm doing pretty good. And so I just kept looking for people who I thought were saying interesting things about these topics and doing things a little bit differently than I had learned in my upbringing, which was very strivey, very accomplishment-focused, very output-oriented, I was hoping that there was another way and I was determined to find people who were talking about it.
1: And and what did you learn from that first conference? Were there common themes that stood out from that first conference? You're laughing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because, no, I, the thing I learned is that events are really hard. Um, that's what I learned at that conference. And so after the first event, I was like, never again. Like, that was Fair so enough. hard. But as far as, like, themes and takeaways, I think the other thing that I inadvertently learned for myself as I was sharing with others is there is no one right way to do anything, that if as many people as you bring together is going to be as many strategies there are to do literally anything, including live your life. And that I think was the thing I walked away with wanting to explore more. If all of these people in this room are what I would consider with external measures of success, and none of them have had the same path, then that means there is no one right answer, which was not what I believed, honestly, at that time. Like I really thought if I achieve a certain level of professional success and I hit these life milestones and I do things the way I've seen and absorbed from media, from watching my parents' generation, from whatever, I really thought there was a formula that I was supposed to master. So it was the undoing of that mindset and belief system that I think started at that very first event.
1: That's really powerful because what you described really is kind of – what drives perfectionism? What's the way, what's this external driven way to be, do show up in the world, look like act, you get it. Um, And so when you see these very diverse folks saying very different things, but have all achieved a worldly success, but did it differently, that is a bit of a mind explosion.
0: Oh, yeah. I think my mind's Still exploding on that topic. I think perfectionism is so pervasive, and especially the women that we gather, right? These are high achieving, successful, I say in air quotes, women. And right, they are constantly trying to meet the expectations of either others or what's in their own head, myself included. So, like I said, that was like the tiny, like, glimpse of it. And now I'm continuing to expand really how I see the world and how people operate in it. And
1: you talked about burnout and really wanting to hear from people and how they did things so you could, you know, do things differently. What have you learned that contributed to your burnout before you created your, you know, by default created your company? What in hindsight were the factors that were contributing to your burnout?
0: I mean, to like go all the way deep there, I think childhood trauma. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think the validation that I got whenever I achieved something, whether it was a good grade, a role in the school play, a accolade at university, um, there was a lot of striving in my youth. And I took those habits into the career world. And then it became even harder to get those pats on the back and kudos. So I tried to work harder for them. Even when I was my own boss, I was still operating in that way of always trying for more and better and improvement. And my standards were so high, even I could not ever achieve them. So it was bad habits, and avoiding my feelings. Because when you slow down, then you have to feel your feelings. You have to have difficult conversations. You have to do all those things that we try not to do. But if I'm so busy and working so hard, then I don't have to do those things. And that's my personal journey, my personal experience. But I know I'm not the only one who shares oh, gosh, motivation. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: And and I, I mean, when I slow down, I have to feel my feelings and striving, which is kind of one of the tools of perfectionism is a powerful protector to keep from. And if you have rooted in, in traumas or difficult life experiences that are still your system still carrying, then, of course, those those protectors are going to kick in into overdrive. and to overdrive. And even like, you know, Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection just had its 10 year anniversary in the fall. And it's still rampant and we're still, we, we still have an epidemic of trying to protect ourselves this way. So I'm curious for you, what has leading your company now that you have a little more space taught you about yourself and your relationship to work?
0: Well, I Am Not My Work would be the biggest Ooh. one. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge one. Um, well, I, well,
1: wait, why is it huge? I mean, it resonates with me, but yeah, why is it well, huge?
0: I mean, so much of my identity was wrapped up in my employment or my title or what I was doing every day for work. And I know that is absolutely something that most people still identify. When someone meets you, they ask you what you do, even though that's like not cool to do anymore. Still, people don't really know what to ask instead. Or if they do ask another question, you still end up describing what it is that you do for work. So So how
1: do you know this though? How do you know you're not your work?
0: I think What's been interesting the last few years, so as the company has you know, found its footing, I would say, and we're not in the, oh, my gosh, this is going to work mode, we're in the this is how we're operating mode, it's been much clearer of I have a job at this company that I happen to own and run, but that doesn't mean that I am it and it is me because it could close. And I've had that happen of I owned a business and then I didn't own it anymore. And I'm still operating in the world, even though that piece mm. of my experience can't be my identity anymore.
1: Yeah, your experiences, your meaningful work is differentiated between from you and your worthiness and your safety, even though it can feel risky. Right, I mean, losing a business, going bankrupt, uh, sure. having public failures—all of those things, especially in this culture, can feel very risky. You know, that differentiation of identity of you know you are not your work—that's hard-earned in this world, isn't it? To really get to that space to separate the two,
0: I feel like a major grown-up. Not going to lie, yes, I did that. <laughs> You've arrived, Shannon. I am. I'm <laughs> major grown-up points. Anything else leading your
1: company has taught you about yourself or your relationship to work?
0: Hmm. I think, um, again, a recent realization is that everything doesn't have to be exciting all the time. Um, that's a new really fun one. I think having worked in startups, having started my own business and then started a consulting company and then starting another business, for a long time, work was very intense. And I thought that that intensity meant excitement and that excitement Mm. meant I was doing something right. And I saw a post on... LinkedIn a couple of days ago that was talking about this false sense of urgency. And I think I was operating that way for a really long time again, like seeking that like excitement of the work. And that was is what was keeping me going when I was actually tired or bored or what have you, because it still felt very high stakes. And so something that I've grown into really probably in the past year is yeah, it doesn't have to be exciting all the time. And that doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong. That doesn't mean I'm being lazy. That doesn't mean I'm uninspired or unmotivated. It just means that I've reached a point where it doesn't have to be intense all the time. And I really am enjoying that space.
1: I think that's a really, I appreciate you bringing that point up it's a really important one, especially how the conflation of exciting and intense, they're they're different things. For sure. And 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 from a nervous system perspective, right? We get those dopamine hits. And then if we're not in that constant intense space and we downshift, our nervous system say, what are you doing wrong? What are you doing wrong? What's this isn't safe. This isn't our normal. And so to unlearn that and to detox from that is having, I am in the process of doing a whole nother level of that downshift is super awkward and uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> yeah, How are well, you I mean, feeling with that? It goes back to the same thing of like, if I'm busy all the time, then that means I'm doing mm-hmm. something important. If I'm stressed and feeling the right that adrenaline and the dopamine and the, oh my gosh, like we're going to achieve this thing on this crazy timeline. And like, then when we get to the end, it's going to be great. Like all of that, again, I think we're bad habits and still rooted in that like, I have a mm-hmm. perpetual fear of people thinking I'm lazy. And so I can't be lazy if I'm like always dialed up to a 10. And if I'm producing all of these things, but really right. I'm not lazy. I just really like to take naps. Those two aren't the same things. And it would be totally fine for me to do both.
1: Yeah. Perfectionism, sure, shames, rest, and and really caring for yourself. Well, What's, what is the... What's the story that maybe still echoes around being seen as lazy? Where, what's going on there?
0: Again, goes back to childhood stuff. My parents were divorced when I was young. And so there was a lot of shuffling back and forth between households and in one household, I was expected to just sit in the other room and be quiet and in the other one, I was expected to get up and do things and there was always kind of the conflict of like, well, I never really knew what I actually wanted to do because the expectations in each house were totally different and I never, I was just trying to navigate the circumstances around me. Mm
1: -hmm. and we we, you kind of can win if you're doing right if you're always doing oh Um, there's control there's agency and there's a sense of empowerment it's not all bad
0: no and there's praise i mean and i love me mm, some praise still do it's it's
1: a drug of choice (laughs) it's a drug of choice so
0: good but
1: yeah yeah. It's like a sugar high. You eventually mm-hmm. crash, right? Yeah. Praise is just, it doesn't sustain versus believing and having a sense of inner knowing regardless of the external. Oy, that's easier said than So I'm, I'm
0: working on that one. I'm definitely still working on that one.
1: Yeah, I I would say all anyone in modern Western modern culture is working on it, too. Well, I want to shift to um, because you you developed this company was about meeting conferences and gathering. And we're literally recording this days away from when the world shut down two years ago. Um, I'd love for you to walk me through what was going through your mind two years ago, going from a business that was in person, and then radically having Mm -hmm. to shift to online.
0: Yeah. Well, it sucked. I'll be totally honest about that. Um, I have, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has like the memory of like, where were you when the world shut down? And so I was actually at a team meeting for our conference that we were planning for spring 2020. And I got a text from my husband that someone that he worked with had an exposure. And so we all dispersed never to see each other again, basically. Um, not ever, but In that context, we canceled the event. I remember having to make that video, telling our community that we wouldn't be holding an event. And then I spent a lot of time scrambling around, like trying to figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to recoup, how I was going to not lose all of the momentum that we had built over, at that point, two and a half years of growing our community and growing the size of the events that we were producing. So We did online events to start. And while that helped, I think, in the beginning of us feeling connected still, from that point, it was a lot of just like, should I try this? Should I try that? Should I try this? Should I try that? With um, also a grieving and just a really, really big sense of disappointment. I had the story running through my head of, you've lost all of your momentum. All of the sacrifices you've made over the past two and a half years are for naught. I had some really, really sad stories going on. And it was super disappointing because I, not only did I love the work that I do, it fed me. And so there's two questions there that you now have to figure out. What do I do now at a time that everything was uncertain? So I think it probably took me like a good year and a half to get out of that funky place. I was still operating. We were still producing online events. We produced two online conferences that I'm insanely proud of the content that we were able to put together, but it just wasn't the same. And I honestly... Up until even probably a few months ago, didn't know if we'd ever get back to doing what we were doing before. So what I where I go in with now, I mean, it's even more a uh, validation of like I am not my business, my business is not me. these are separate identities because I really didn't have a choice but to try to figure out other things that I could do to fill the gap. Well,
1: so to jump in, say so you you did have a choice. you could have quit. I could have I thought about it a lot.
0: how come you didn't? didn't I didn't have a better option I don't know I don't I truly don't know why I didn't I think I was lucky that we had a program that was running that was still able to run pretty much unfazed online and it wasn't the revenue was not what I needed really at the time to sustain but I was seeing incredible transformation and community in those people I was oh. serving. So it's like, all right, I know this isn't actually enough, but if I can do this and keep doing this, at least I'm not like laying in my bed all day. Maybe that's
1: what So I you- think this is really this is really important because it wasn't, I mean, the bottom line isn't a- Bottom line: We're we're business owners. we this these aren't hobbies. Yeah. But it was the meaning the meaningful work was sustaining, and this was what was fascinating to me early in the pandemic, and even as I continued to see who, like especially like some of my friends who are local business owners, like restaurant owners, mm-hmm. and seeing how they were like immediately pivot like outside dining and got the heaters and shifted to up their delivery and got their websites up, and others that just froze or just called it a day and and there's no judgment it was just kind of fascinating to see who did what and why and what you, your answer there just really sits with i mean from what you're saying too you 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 have these kind of internal drivers to do and, and even it has its dark side its shadow side to it um but also that you saw transformation happen this felt aligned to you and so if it was bigger than you. And I, that's, that's how I, it lands with me. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I've owned multiple businesses, as I've explained now. I've never been as confident in the product. I think as I was in the and am in that in this product, I always was like, it could be better. We could be doing more. What I owned a brick and mortar business, it was literally never enough there. I win my consulting, I never could deliver enough value. This one program that we run, I'm I would not change. I mean, I would pro- change tiny like administrative things on the back end because I'm very unorganized, but like, other than that, like the delivery and the way that we're able to impact people. I feel so confident about. And I've just literally never felt that way before.
1: That's huge. That's a huge. And when you talk about program, you're talking about Swell by Rebel, the community of leaders that kind of a mentorship.
0: It's peer, peer mentorship. And it is so powerful. And I think I knew it kind of when I started the program, but I really had no idea until it's started moving and people started really leaning on each other during a really challenging time and making some really big, bold decisions.
1: Mm, That's powerful. Are there any echoes of the burdens of that time, feeling the grief, the feeling like a failure, any echoes from that time two years ago that are still with you today that you're still navigating?
0: I'm sure there are, but I am distracted by my optimism for the future right now. Mm. I am really happy to say that (laughs) Because I have not been able to say that for a while Um,
1: I'm distracted by my optimism for the future I'll co-sign that That's good, right? Yeah
0: Well, it's kind of like when you bring everything down to the bare bones And then you have like the tiniest bit of opportunity to like Start it back up Like everything can be exciting again Yeah Yeah but
1: that's the hope, right? There, the, to me, it's more than optimism. There's a sense of hope, and then you're in this space of action and connection. It's yeah. not just a Pollyanna, bypassy thing. No, not at it's all. It's backed up by very a lot of intention, a lot of action yeah. that's aligned with what's important to you. I'm really excited to rumble with you on this question because it's something I've been digging into a lot lately. You built a company and a community that focuses on women supporting. From supporting and learning from women, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, (laughs) women are still very competitive with each other and struggle to truly support other women, especially when they feel like they're missing out on their own success. So, first, I just like for you to tell me about a time when you experienced competition from other women in response to your success and achievements. And how were you feeling at that moment?
0: I loved this question so much because it takes me way back. Uh, Before I was a grown up person, I was a professional (laughs) ballet dancer. (laughs) Like literally, I grew up doing ballet from the time I was six years old until I was 16. And I went to a Russian ballet conservatory. I literally lived and breathed it. And None of those people are still my friends that I spent literally my entire youth with because we weren't really allowed to be friends. We were – In competition with each other at all times. So we were being compared to one another in class every single day. We competed with each other for the roles in the performances. Even after we would get a role in a performance, we could still be replaced by our peers. And that did happen once I replaced another dancer, like halfway through the rehearsal season. And it's so interesting because I think my experience now as an adult is shaped by that but actually in a different way that you would think. I cherish my female friendships and female relationships, and I want nothing but what is the best for every single woman in my life because I basically didn't get to have that as a young person. And it took me a long time into my adult life to realize, like, wow, I don't have any friends. (laughs) Like, that's strange. Like, why do other people have friends and I don't? And – I really don't experience much of that competition in my life and the people that I allow into my circle are just not that vibe because I I think I've seen how isolating and awful it is. And you walk away with a world of other challenges being a professional ballet dancer other than not having friends. So it's just something that I really I just have no tolerance for if a woman is going to come into my circle and have that competitive attitude and not want to be supportive of the other, you just aren't going to be around me for very much long. It's a hard stop. Literally game changer break, like done. And and so
1: the thing is I've been researching and getting into some of the, the stuff that's been written study around internalized misogyny. Right. And I'm wondering how, given what you do and what your company does, how do you, do you, do you have a plan to overtly address and identify internalized misogyny so we can identify in ourselves and help the women in your community do the same?
0: So I saw that phrase internalized misogyny. I literally had to Google it and I was like, I don't, I couldn't even tell you an example of what that would be like how that would show up. So I do not have a formal plan or policy on how, to navigate that as a challenge. And of course, I mean, we are a part of the patriarchal system. We all have these internalized Mm -hmm. biases that we don't even recognize that we have. I think what has helped us so far as far as creating the community and the environment is how the leadership of the organization has showed up. So that's me and the entire team that works with us. Like, we just have a everyone is involved, everyone is included, everyone is invited to explore their biases here in a safe space. So it hasn't shown up as in a conflict in Amongst any of our members ever, it hasn't shown up in any of my groups that people are challenging other people with that kind of basis of bias. I think we are so open to exploring literally all biases in these conversations that it's kind of on the table regardless. So if you say something that you can then have mirrored back to you of like, oh wow, you're right. like I did make that assumption. I did have one group once um, Where this woman was talking about a challenge that she was having with another woman at her workplace. And someone mentioned, well, you're very attractive and that could be one of the reasons. And it was like, Yeah, no. Like, I mean, maybe that's part of that person's experience, but like, not okay. Like, and that's a weird thing to say to someone.
1: Yeah. And I guess I'm I'm just there from what is what I learned, what I'm learning about you and what I've read about your your company, it's probably gonna attract women that are not, I mean, I think we're all burdened by this belief that we need to sell, sell ourselves short. And I think perfectionism is definitely one of those acceptable ways to, to do that. And then that to compete, I know my, my bosses that were female in the past were my most challenging bosses. And that's, I'm trying to be respectful because I I do have a reverence for them, but they were, it was, it, it got, it, it, it was rough at times. Um, and as and, and because I think there was this sense of it's either you or me mm-hmm. instead of there's there's room and,
0: that, and I'm gonna make room for I mean, you. the data shows that absolutely still exists. And I think there was an article that came out recently in the Harvard Business Review that said pay inequity is worse when there are more women leaders in a company than when there are more male leaders in a company. Very similarly, I think, Linked to that, to that challenge, or to the challenge of we have higher expectations for the other women around us because we've had to work so hard to get where that, we are, right? So I it's, got a lot of lectures. On yeah, that. yeah, it's not even that like you and I are in competition, but like this is how I got here, and so for it to be any easier than you is somehow. Bad, which is like literally the goal. So that doesn't make sense logically of like, no, like I'm working hard so that the next generation cannot do this. But to go back to the internalized misogyny and perfectionism, like those two things kind of being connected, I think. You are correct in saying the people who are attracted to this organization, perfectionism is a challenge for them, typically. These are high-achieving women that are like, okay, I got to the place that I was trying to get to and now I'm here and I don't feel great. Like, what is happening? So a lot of that is internal competition. They're not even looking at the people around them. They are battling with themselves and their own worthiness. So I almost don't have energy to like be in competition with other people because I'm fighting myself so hard. I see that come up more often than I see people taking each other down, not that they don't exist in environments where that happens. And the other thing, a lot of women that find our organization are the only or very few women in the teams that they operate. So maybe that's happening, but like they have bigger challenges than that at the moment.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, no, I just, it seems like your business and community has a little bit of a secret sauce I'm trying to tease out because my assumption is you and I, like myself, have been to groups where it's all women and there's times where I'm like, I need to take a shower.
0: Oh, for sure. This was a
1: little like it was like, hi, performative. How are you? And I'm like, performative, insincere. Yes, I got a lot of elevator eyes, you know, they look you up and down. Yes, and I'm um, and the sense I get from your space is that that doesn't draw. So I'm just kind of wondering, what do you think sets apart your community from these performative, kind of competitive organizations I mean, and, and gatherings?
0: Me, I think the answer mm. might be me. I mean, I am the leader of this organization and the way I show up is like, I'm not performing for you. Like I am going to openly share the struggles and the challenges. I'm not positioning myself as an expert because I am literally not. I come with full on curiosity and I expect everyone Mm -hmm. else in the room is doing the same. So I think if people do come that are used to and more comfortable in those performative places, they realize and slink to the back pretty quickly, and they're not the ones that keep coming back again and again.
1: So, you know, you bring up something. I really, I just want to acknowledge that ownership there. That's that's awesome. And I, I absolutely think you're correct. And it brings me back to when I was working in D.C. in the Senate. And I, I could tell, like, even if I disagreed with the other senators, I could tell the type of leader the senator was by my interactions with their staff. Mm-hmm. And even I'm like, your staff is so nice, even though your policies suck. But I would be like, wow, they're a good. They care about their team. And sometimes it'd be like people that I really admired and what they were doing with public policy were horrible leaders and their staff were competing against each other. Turnover was high. So I, I really do think I appreciate and want to acknowledge you taking ownership of that. I think that's awesome. Thanks. All right. I want to get into talk about networking. I'm really excited about this part. This is a a little bit for me. Okay. I get excited about networking and i um, pretty much no one I know feels the same way.
0: I, I actually fan girl on networking with you. Yes.
1: But we're not in the majority. Like, no, have you I found know. that like this? Okay. Okay. Cause this is a loaded word for people yeah. and networking often has a negative connotation. And I could see sometimes too, you got to go network. It's almost like you got to go be a used car salesman, nothing against used car salesman, but the whole connotation mm-hmm. of salesy and icky. And they see it as a, practice that feels dreadful, but a necessary evil. Right. So what are your thoughts on why networking has such a bad reputation?
0: I love this question because this is like one of my soapboxes. So the reason why networking has a bad reputation is because there's so many bad networking events and opportunities, right? There's so many of those spaces that are those performative, icky spaces. There's so many people that think they have to, so they don't show up in a way that's actually conducive to meeting or getting to know anyone. I know I've experienced, I mean, if you've been in DC, you absolutely have been to god-awful events where the goal is networking and I've been stuck in the corner next to like the one insurance guy who's afraid to talk to anybody else but I look nice so he corners me and then I'm stuck talking to him forever because I'm too polite to walk away and that is what people think of when they think of networking. I, I mean, yes, going to an event is one way you can meet other people but networking is so much more than just showing up in a room with a drink ticket and 10 business cards. Networking can be done online, network can be done on social media accounts, network can be done through referrals and introductions and invitations and there's so many other ways to meet people, which is really the goal of networking, right, to meet people. And then meeting people is actually only like one step of networking. You have to develop a connection and a relationship with that other person for it to be meaningful in any way, shape or form
1: what would you call a bad networking event? I mean, you touched on others. Performative, here's your drink ticket, it's the setup. But I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on what's a bad networking event or experience.
0: Oh my God, I've been to so many. How do I line it up? Um, People that really are truly just there to make sales, right? Like I have a business. I need more clients. I've been told the way you get more clients is to come to this thing. And so I have no curiosity for the other human beings that I'm connecting with aside from, can I sell them my thing? That is one bad one. I've been to networking events where the organ- the people who are attending are just a mishmash of too many different interests and don't there's no connective tissue or no program or no format that gives them anything to talk with each other about. So it's just really one awkward conversation after another. Those are often networking events that have no host. So like there's no one actually in charge of anyone having a good experience there and no way to give feedback on whether that was a good experience or not. Um, And I've also been invited to things that I trust the person who invites me and I go there and then it's no one with anything to say. Uh, if like literally a room full of introverts that none of them want to be there or talk to each other, and so then I end up like performing myself to like, co- like not have it be silent, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could go on. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm,
1: I'm like actually having memories I flash go of different ones.
0: <laughs> I'm getting sweaty <laughs> we as <well>. both could.
1: <laughs> Don't make me go back because they're awful. They're yeah. awful, and I think the it's the agenda. If you go there thinking that the people you're going to meet, if there's an agenda of taking and getting, and not seeing a human being in front of, in a relationship to be built, and then just a curiosity to see what it would lead to, and that that in itself is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it's that's we we we've really lost for a long time lost the capacity and appreciation for just that we're it's not transactional it's just build connection mm-hmm. and the rest is the more the magic sauce is so how is your approach to networking different than the conventional wisdom on this very important business pillar?
0: Yeah, well. As a person, not as a business owner who helps people make connections with strangers, but as personally, like my philosophy is, again, going back to just curiosity. I'm really interested in people, what makes them tick, what they've done, who they are, how they got there. So I genuinely have lots of questions to ask people because I'm just really nosy about them. And my other philosophy, especially when I'm making outreach, which I do a lot, because like I said, I don't like to go to networking events because it's really challenging to build a real connection when there's so many people in the room. And that's another thing that I think a lot of networking organizations get wrong. There's like a special number where people can actually connect and meet each other. And it is not 50 people. It is less than that.
1: What is what is the number?
0: I think it's 30. Um, if huh. it's facilitated, you can go higher. Um, the best is 10 people. But... Noted. Again, this is my experience. I, I try to come from a place of gratitude. You know, I literally email strangers on a regular basis, whether it's to participate as a speaker at one of my events, or I think what you're doing is really interesting and I want to learn more. I just started a new project, which is Rebel Magazine, which gives me another excuse to email random people and ask them about their business. But I always come from a place of gratitude of you're doing this thing that i find really interesting and inspiring and i would like to learn more about it but also i'm just happy that it exists in the world and i'm going to share that with you in some way i just interviewed one of the co-founders of Owls Brew Boozy Tea i don't know if you've seen it in your whole foods but it's basically tea cocktails that are in a can they sell them at whole foods they're absolutely delicious they're like revolutionizing clean beverages, like in the alcoholic beverage space. And they have this really interesting story that I think I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's something like 4% of alcohol, like not just owners, but like people in the industry are women. Like it's so small. Where 22% of women leadership in like your average startup company, it's 4%. Like Everything from the founder to who makes it, to who puts it in the bottle, to who stocks it on the shelf, all men. So they're doing really interesting things. And that's why I want to talk to them. I'm like, this is so interesting to me. So that's the pitch that I'm sending them. Like, I'm so interested in this. I want to interview about it. I want to include it in our magazine. And they're like, great. Yeah. When? I-, I find that, at least in my experience with networking too, it's like, hey, you're around a group of
1: people I want to learn more about or that I that I serve and I want to see what you're experiencing and learn from you, that's like such a compliment to pay to someone, especially if it's, it has to be sincere. It has to be sincere. Um, and, yeah.
0: Don't be a weirdo. But, you know, and it <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> that's the title of this episode don't be a well, weirdo well <laughs> that might be the title of my
0: entire existence but okay <laughs> <Mine too. laughs> too. all right this is
1: really helpful and, and I think that genu- and we can find our way to connect doesn't have to be yeah. in a room with a bunch of people with <sighs> dated business cards and the
0: one other oh, thing yes. I want to say I think that's like the misconception about networking is that like your network is only powerful when it's like lots of people And I think very similarly to like we want to get more followers on social media, you feel like you want to get more connections and have more relationships. And I find that's not really the case. The deeper you can make your relationships with people that really – care for you, that are looking out for you, that are interested in what you're doing, that to me leads to more than just knowing a lot of people or have gone to a lot of events and like people think you're familiar versus people really knowing you and what you're about and genuinely wanting to help you.
1: I think that's great. Yeah. Again, genuine coming up, um, authentic, intentional. It doesn't have to be in person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Following your curiosities is a great way to network Yeah, man, and yeah, I mean, I feel like I've heard people who talk about building your email list. It's not about more. It's are these folks engaged, and do you have relation? What's your relationship with them? Um, Yeah, yeah, more isn't better necessarily in this space. I agree. I mean, it's not chocolate,
0: people. This is something else. In that case, I'll be like, correct.
1: (laughs) It's not Swiss chocolate. I'll say that much. All right. So I'd love to talk about success. How do you define success today? And how is this different from what you were taught?
0: Well, I was taught that success is more money, more power, 2.5 children, white picket fence, vacation home, nice car, Everyone in the world loving you, I think, was also on that list. Like every human being on the earth thinking that you're great. Um, I remember actually when I was like five years old and I something was happening. I don't even remember who was president, but somebody was president. And my parents were like talking about how they like didn't do something right or whatever. And it was like this realization of like, oh, my God, like not everyone likes the president. I don't ever want to be president. <laughs> That's like my five-year-old Definitely. brain being like, I don't want that job because people might not like me. Like, that's so weird. Um, I mean, I still don't want that job, but that's not why. So that is what I believed as a youth <laughs> that success would be. <laughs> but um, my success, my version of success, I actually have a good answer to this because it is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's just like enjoying my day. I know that sounds mm. simple, but – I like my schedule. I like the people that I get to spend time with. I like that I get to take a nap most days. I like look in my closet and I actually like the clothes I have to wear. Like there's just little things in my life that please me and I get to experience them, which maybe having more money, I'll have a little bit nicer pair of pants, but probably I'll still shop at Target. So like the money thing is is kind of I get that that's not a thing anymore. I really don't care about cars. So like my Subaru is just perfectly fine for this suburban white mother that I am. And the other stuff is just stuff, right? Even experiences are just experiences. If I can like my day-to-day, that to me is success.
1: And that feels like joy. It's finding your joy. And it's not the kind of joy that was conflated with intensity and excitement. It's a grounded Customized presence mm-hmm. that isn't externally connected. You I get know. to author it, and it's really reclaiming what we've given away. You know, and to me, that's what
0: internalized misogyny is. At least, mm. that's what I've had to unlearn. I'm going to need to read give more on that topic. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's literally just getting to experience simple things and being happy with those things. I'm not chasing anything. I'm not striving for anything. And that makes the inner dialogue in my brain a lot nicer. And I also think that is success when I mm. am actually nice to myself every day.
1: Imagine that.
0: I know. I'm a weird – definitely a weirdo with that. I don't know many people who are nice to themselves every day.
1: No. It's kind of I know. Sad. We've got an epidemic of I I often will say to people I'm like wow if this were possible we could take a restraining order out on you for how you talk to yourself and treat yourself right right? and they don't even realize it because it's so normal it's Mm -hmm. just in the water that they're swimming well I remember the first
0: time I realized that my thoughts are not me like that's like a mind explosion time but a lot of people are still not there I forget sometimes, and then we'll host a, a workshop on thought work, and I'm like, "Oh no, you really didn't know that." Okay, cool. We'll go back, we'll take a few steps. Back. The basics. Mm-hmm.
1: It's really about those basics, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious too: is is this meaning leading, rebel, and doing all that you're doing within that company? Is this what you thought you'd be you'd be doing
0: today? No. Definitely now. Mm. I thought I would be wearing a power suit and working in a really busy office and driving at least an hour commute every day mm. and smoking Parliament lights and during my drive. And <laughs> I mean, really, you want to know what my goals were as a teenager? Like, that was it. That meant I made it in, like, very high, high <sighs> heels and probably even pantyhose, which was a thing in the past. Oh. Um, so yeah, no, Absolutely. definitely not. But also, I mean, that's like kind of a joke, but not really. That is true of what I thought my successful power woman life was going to look like. Um, even a year ago, I don't, wouldn't have seen this being my experience. I thought we, I was on a different path, even with the growth of this company. I thought we were going to have bigger and badder events and go to large cities and build a team and there was a there was still a lot of striving attached to my goals for the company even up until the pandemic and I've had an opportunity as I know many have to really reevaluate how can I still feel that I'm growing still feel like I'm learning but not pushing and that's my new goal.
1: Learning and growing without Pushing. Kind of another word that I use and a colleague of mine uses efforting.
0: I used to love to effort. That was my jam. Mm -hmm. Now I would like to not at all.
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I want to be thinking about that for a while. This is awesome. Okay. I've got some quick fire questions for you. All right. What are you reading right now?
0: Okay. The last book I finished was called Other People's Clothes. And it was basically about my 20s. But it is um, these two girls that are (laughs) art students and they go to an exchange program in Berlin and they start throwing raves in their apartment. But then like something crazy happens because it's like a thriller. Um, I liked it. I thought it was good
1: adding it to the list mm-hmm. what song are you playing on repeat
0: i have been listening to beach boy by ben a it's just like a really pop lovely tune for the ears because i'm in like spring mode and i'm ready to have champagne thursdays on my back patio and listen to pop music oh,
1: nice so speaking of pop culture mm-hmm. what is your favorite 1980s movie or TV show um, Point Break
0: is my favorite movie of all time. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And what is your what is your mantra right now? Let it be easy. Mm, let it be easy. That's it. What is
1: an unpopular opinion you hold? I have very many. I think. Let me
0: pick one. <laughs> um, bras are overrated. I don't know if that's unpopular, <laughs> but definitely people are not living it, and I am. <laughs>
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry for all the belly laughs to those listening today, but you're bringing it today. You're bringing it today. And who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human?
0: I have a mentor and dear friend of mine who I basically just try to follow in her footsteps all day, every day. And her name is Rachel Baxter Cook. Rachel Cook, she's a genius business strategist and literally the person who showed me that you didn't have to work so hard to be successful. And so I tried to just keep following her and her journey and it's led me to good places so far.
1: That's awesome. Shannon, this was a joy. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing from your heart and your experiences. I know many people are going to resonate with what you shared. I know I did. So really, really an honor today. Thank you.
0: It was a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: We perform to protect It's easier to be confident and cool when you perform, right? But to lead with vulnerability means accessing immense discomfort. And we have a discomfort problem where many communities cultivate cool and tapping out of discomfort and pain instead of feeling their way through the hard things. The pendulum can swing to the other extreme with people sharing all the things, lacking boundaries and performing what looks like vulnerability but feels intrusive and manipulative. Now, this is the opposite of what those who are in the rebel community experience. I loved how Shannon owned her responsibility as a leader in her rebel communities and her value of a posture of deep curiosity versus being the expert is a powerful reminder and example to us all. So I'm wondering after listening to today's show, how about you reflect upon this? How do you take up space? And how are you curious about others around you? What kind of community do you want to cultivate? And what unhealthy communities or systems are you in right now that you might need to rethink? Now, just remember, true connection and community is felt and earned. But to really live it, man, this is the work ahead of us. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now leading today is not fluffy title or fancy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you need to deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.